All right. All right, everyone, good morning. Good morning, it's good to see you. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the elders here at Legacy Church. I'm the lead teacher, and I'm excited to teach today. We're going to be in Galatians 6. So if you have a Bible next to you or an app that you use, go ahead and flip over to Galatians 6. Um, as Kevin had mentioned, we're slowly working through and about to end our look into Galatians, which has been good for us. He's right. Um, Paul, just to jump into it, Paul has been talking to us the last couple chapters on what it looks like when God's gospel, because it is his gospel, it's his good news, when God's gospel changes us, I mean radically changes us, and not changes just how we handle ourselves, but how God's radical gospel changes how we handle each other, which is pretty big. I mean, what God does whenever his gospel changes us is he doesn't just create a new culture, he creates a counterculture. Everything that you step into and you're adopted into as a new Christian is so radically different from what you came from. We live in a community now where we honor each other instead of honoring ourselves on top of each other. Where we serve each other instead of serving ourselves above each other and competing and comparing ourselves. Where we equip each other instead of equipping ourselves. So the, the countercultural gospel builds a very countercultural people that go back into the culture and offer a message that is, again, very countercultural. So Paul is going to talk a little bit about this today, okay? In Galatians 6, like I said, just jumping straight in because we have a lot to do. Look in the very first, well, look in Galatians 6, 6. We'll jump in there. Galatians 6, 6. Paul says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Well, this is a little bit awkward as a pastor to teach, right? Because it's talking about sharing good things with me, right? So we're going to take a special offering right now. <laughs> that, that would be bad. But it, it is awkward, I will say. But if I could just mention a few things on this before we blast through. And yes, you can text your questions in whenever the number comes back up there. But as the scriptures are proclaimed, as we teach them, as we preach them, we believe as a church that that is the primary vehicle and the primary means for how God grows his church. I'm not saying Sunday mornings, this is the primary vehicle and the primary means for how God um, attracts people and draws people to his cross and empty tomb. I'm just saying proclaiming the word is, preaching is, teaching is. We firmly believe that. Um, we believe that the preaching and the teaching of God's Word and His Gospel has radical impact and influence on both those who are very far from Christ and those who are close to Christ. If you are far, and some of you in here today might be far from Christ. You, you might in your mind they that's me. I, I don't love Jesus. I had something that happened to me back when I was in junior high at a camp. I'm not sure what happened. I know I've not been living for Him since. So I'm kind of confused now. I don't really know what's going on. I just know he doesn't excite me. I've got a, a lot of distance between me and God. Some of you are in that place. Listen, the gospel has radical effect on people that are just like you. The Bible talks about this beautiful story where God enters, literally, enters mankind and becomes the God-man. And he lives a perfect life among us. He's partying with us, camping out around the campfire with us, telling stories with us, teaching, 
feeding, laughing, crying, doing miracles, doing some beautiful things around us, living life, working hard around us, walking with us, just not sinning with us. And he lives this perfect life so that whenever our murderous hands hang him on a cross, he takes the scandalous life that we've lived and he trades it with us. And he gives that perfect life. He spent all those years living and he gives it to us. It's a gift of benevolence to us. And he takes our grime and our scandal and he stacks it on his broad shoulders on the cross as God vents his righteous judgment on all of sin aimed right at what should be you and me. And he takes it on his own shoulders. And in that beautiful switch that trade, we have a life that we didn't earn, and he had a life that we lived. It's the gospel. And then he dies, gets put in a tomb. God raises him again on the third day by the power of his right hand and through his Holy Spirit. He comes up, he teaches his new church on, hey, I'm here. The gospel is taking effect. The kingdom is here. This is what it looks like. And after several days of teaching, God raises him up to his right hand where he intercedes for you and me, He cheers us on, he's standing up, he's yelling for you, waiting patiently for the time where he gets to come back, not as a baby, not on the cross, but as a valiant king on a horse, leading his army, ready to collect us all into one big family, grafted together to do what? To party again around a new communion table. This gospel story has a radical effect on those who are very far from Christ, because whenever God decides in his gift, in his grace, there is this moment where our hearts change. And it happened to me. And it's happened to a lot of you. That moment where you look at the blood on your hands and the sin. I mean, I was a vandal. I was a scoundrel. And I look at all the trash. And, I, and I've said this before up here from the pulpit, and it's easy for me to remember. It's a moment where I say, oh my God, look what I have done. And I say, oh my God, look what you have done. And I can't, as much as my sin plunges, to, to just the dark, deep depths. God's mercy and His grace keeps plunging even deeper. That moment where I see that, and I see the beauty of a bloody cross in an empty tomb, as I see the beauty of what God's gift to mankind is, it changes hearts. It changed my heart. But the good news about the gospel message is it's not just to save you, it's also to sustain you. The gospel is not just for those who are far from Christ. The gospel is also for those who are very close to Christ, right? Because we need to be reminded, don't we, Christians? Don't we, folks? Church, we need to be reminded that we don't have to work and perform and jump through hoops through this just disappointed employer waiting for us to mess up so he could dock our pay, trying to perform so he gives us a raise with this weird, we don't have to do that. We are free to enjoy him free to love him fully, free to love each other fully. We need to be reminded the gospel does that. Now, I say all that to say that we as a church, again, we believe that the primary means for growing the church, depth and width-wise, for growing the church, is that message proclaimed. We believe in social action when it comes to the city, right? We believe in um, serving the city. We believe in doing things that will reach Knoxville where Knoxville is at. I mean, the, the first example I think of in my mind is the laundromat. And yes, we're still doing that. We've been doing that for three years now. Tens of thousands of dollars we've given out in quarters and in coffee to people who need it. Now listen, that coffee's not going to save anybody. The quarters, the quarters don't bring conviction of sin. 
I mean, it might be a little bit of a picture of the gospel because they don't deserve the quarters. I've actually told someone that once. They said, oh, no, no, I'd keep the quarters. Keep it for someone else. I don't deserve it. I said, no one does. Of course you don't deserve it. It's a gift. That's what a gift is. It's a gift. I don't want it back. If you don't want the quarters, you go give it to somebody else. And they always use it because it's more uncomfortable to go and give the quarters to someone else than to just use it, you know? It's gift benevolence. It is a picture of what some of what God does in the gospel, but it's not the gospel. It doesn't convict us. That takes a proclaimed, preached, taught, exegeted, exhorted message. We believe what Paul says right here, that those who receive the ministry of the word are to bear the burdens and to share all good things with those who minister. Again, it's a little awkward, but this, this is God's idea. It's not man's. This is not some Western world construct that we've all come up with to develop this professional class of pastors. It's very biblical that those who are gifted, called, desirous to preach, teach, and minister the word are supported by those that they lead. Now listen, just for a moment, I want to hijack this passage um, and mention that there are people here now that have just as much and just as heavy of a hand in developing a gospel central culture here as I do up here on the mic. Maybe even more heavy. They have just as heavy of a hand, but they don't get the, the stage, they don't get the prominent exposure. Even if they could get opportunity up here, they wouldn't take it. It's all unseen. It's all behind the scenes. I'd like to look at one passage real quick just to teach this. We're going to look at Acts 6, and we're going to fly through some of this pretty fast, so if you can't turn there fast, don't worry about it. Just keep your finger in Galatians. This is a description of a very young church, infant church. And the twelve, and that's the disciples, summoned the full number of the disciples, which was over a hundred, and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This passage is widely mishandled, all right? This is how we blow it when we read this passage. Some of you have done what I've done, and we read this, and we think to ourselves, what Peter is really saying is, hey, we're big league now. We're big league now. We've got more important things to do than serving people. That's junior varsity. What we need to do is we need to find some scrubs that aren't really doing anything anyway and get them recruited into this deal, right? Because we've we got to recluse. We've got to get out of here and go find a little pocket or a cave where we can pray and do sermon prep because that's important stuff. This stuff is wasting our time, right? It's not really what Peter's saying. Because if you take that service aspect out of what the church is, the church doesn't look so gospel-centered anymore. It just sounds like it. Because the sermon prep is happening, but no one's being served. There's no gospel being enacted, just chatted about a lot. So it's important. I would suggest that it is a very important aspect of developing a Jesus lookalike culture whenever we have people that sow and deposit into us. That it might even be more important in some aspects than what I'm doing right here. I know it might be a stretch, but I believe it. I mean, think about it. There are folks here right now that are plowing and teaching and shaping and building a culture that is centered on the gospel right even now. Right as I stand here preaching, there are women back there watching kids. And they're not watching like babysitting watching. They're praying for your kids. They're teaching. And they're not teaching junk either. 
It's not like this, hey, Jonah was thrown into the sea uh, because he was disobedient, so hey, you don't want to be like Jonah, so listen to God the very first time he says something and you won't get thrown into the sea. Whatever that means, that's total heresy, first of all. But what, what they are teaching is Jesus is a better Jonah who was thrown into the sea of mankind and swallowed by the belly of the earth. And his mission was to preach to a people who didn't deserve it, a scandalous, vandalous group of people. That's what you, listen, if you've got kids back there, I hope it's a ministry to you that they will grow up seeing Christ more clearly in the scriptures than you and I ever did at that age. I love it that my son's gonna, my son is now able to look at Exodus and tell me where Christ is and all that. I didn't even read Exodus until I was like 24, you know? I couldn't even find it until I was 23. It's beautiful. And when we, are, we add that 7 to 10 class, and some of you husbands, we're going to challenge to go back there with your wives and deposit. Man, that's important. I mean, I could preach all day, but if we don't have parents back there investing in that, then we don't have a gospel for cult. We're just talking about it. What about the ops ministry? Most of you don't know this happens because it's happening before you get up. But you have men coming up here and putting curtains up and signs, carpet that I'm standing on, the little flyer sitting around the church. It's a beautiful thing that they're doing. Now, from the outside looking in, it might look a little insignificant, right? Like they're the physical plant. But they're sharing life. They're praying together. They're drinking coffee together, and they're horse playing, and they're getting to know each other. And it is a culture where they're serving each other and bearing each other's burdens, and that is part of building a gospel-centered culture. Right? I mean, the list goes up. The worship team, where do you even start? Right? They pack their stuff up. They bring it up here. They unpack it. They set it up. Church is over. They pack it back up in their car. They take it home. They unpack it. But then rehearsal comes. So they pack it back up in the car. They go to rehearsal. They unpack it. It goes on and on and on. Jeff Rowland's done it for over two years, almost single-handedly. There's indentations in his back seat of his car from where he throws the drums back there, you know? Where do you start? Is this insignificant? It's not. They're building an environment where they're teaching you and leading you to a throne where there is a king and he's worthy of our worship and they're helping us get there. It is part of a gospel-centered culture. We have redemption groups gospel-centered culture. Listen, we have community groups, calm groups in this church. This is what I can't... Some of you have been hosting these things in your home for a long time. Garrett and Kendall have hosted the calm group that I'm in. They've hosted that since it started. No way that's easy. Food rubbed in the carpet, people coming early, people staying late, people not bringing enough food, bringing too much food, bringing food that isn't any good, Right? It's hard. Not one peep. Friends, that's important in developing a gospel-centered culture. So if I look at the broad perspective of what Paul is doing right here, what he is saying is, is we should build a culture where we honor those who are sacrificially making deposits and sowing into us. We should share with them. Whenever you see someone that's doing something prominent like that, someone is really throwing their weight behind this and developing that culture, share something with them encourage them. Let them know that you see and appreciate what they do. Write them a card. And when I say write, I don't mean sign your name in a card that a professional wrote, but write in a card. Stick a gift card in that card and hand it to them. Share good things. Share good things. Paul's talking about a culture. He is talking about pastors and leaders and teachers, but he's talking about a culture too. And he's going to get more into that here in just a minute. 
I got to move on. If you have questions, you could text it in. Verse 7 Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now those two terms, corruption, that doesn't mean like political corruption. That's about the only time we ever hear it. The word nuance is decomposition, bodily decay, even up to death. In eternal life, reaping to the Spirit and getting, or I'm sorry, sowing to the Spirit and reaping eternal life, that's not heaven. That's living a Christ-like life now. If you're a Christian, eternity started the moment you became a Christian, right? You're living out eternity. One day you will shut your eyes, and whenever you open them, Jesus will be there. You're in eternity, right? That's what he's talking about right here. And then verse 9, very key verse for us today. And let us not, everyone say it. Oh my goodness. Let, and let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Grow weary, give up, grow weary, give up. He starts off by saying God cannot be mocked. This does not mean that humanity cannot hurl insults at God, because we've done that since we've been humanity, have we not? Of course we can do that. We're very good at it. It's our native tongue. (laughs) He's just basically saying God can't be proven wrong. God cannot be proven the fool. That he is always right. And even if in the moment it seems like he is wrong and he is a fool, just wait a minute. It'll all shake out. That's what he's saying right here. We think we can make a fool of God, though, and prove him wrong. That's what we do when we're sinning. When we rebel against God, what we are ultimately saying is, is, God, you're wrong. You're wrong, and I'm right. And you're not really good. You're not graceful. You're not strong. You're definitely not consistent. You can't preserve me. You're off. You're not even seeing this correctly. But I am. You don't know what's good for me, but I do. You're not here for me, but I am. This is what it means to mock God. But Paul is saying, make no mistake, this doesn't even work. Even when it looks like it's working, it's not. Even where it looks like he's left, he hasn't. Even where it looks like he is wrong, he's right. Sometimes it takes some time for us to see that, but God will not, cannot be mocked. Now he's speaking in botany terms here. Sowing, you drop a seed in the ground, you wait, I get it, a plant comes up. I'm not really into botany or planting anything, but that's, it's terms that we can all understand, correct? There's this interview I heard a couple weeks ago, and I've tucked it away for this moment because it's a beautiful illustration of this. There was this podcast I listened to where a man was interviewed. His name is Joseph DeSana. He's the guy responsible for originating and inventing the Spartan races that you're seeing pop up all over the country, right? Um, he originally started something called the Death Race, which is very hard to get into. You have to apply to get into it. You're screened by the race director because 80 to 85% of people quit. It's a very difficult race. It's considered one of the hardest on planet, right? But he needed something to get the guys off the couch. That's what those Spartan races are, by the way. That is his attempt to get people off the couch and doing something that are burning calories, right? More than thinking, just thinking. So he develops the Spartan races. Now, it's not his entrepreneurial aptitude that was intriguing to me. It was his race resume. It is the thing of legends. He has over 50 ultra endurance events to his name. If you're not familiar with what that means, 
An ultra, like say an ultra marathon, is anything above a marathon distance. Usually they start around 40 miles and up, up to maybe 300. I've seen some ultra races go up to 300 miles, right? Um, which people cover that all the time. They're walking among us, these people, right? They're crazy. He has over 50 that are over 100 miles. He once did 14 Ironman races in one year. In one year. He once said that the marathon is adorable and cute. (laughs) Just to give you a perspective of this guy's mind, he once did the Vermont 100, which is a very difficult trail run. Then he flipped around and did the Badwater Ultra Marathon, which is in Death Valley. The race starts and it's 120 degrees. You have to wear a protective suit. It's 135 miles and it climbs two miles within that distance. He did those two and then he threw an Ironman in the middle up in Lake Placid. He did all of that in one week. One week. It's crazy. He once showed up at the Iditarod in Alaska. That's the race where those dogs lead the sleds across the tundra. He ran it. He literally ran that. And the guy that was with him collapsed in the snow face down. So he strapped him to his back and completed the race. He's like the Dos Equis guy of racing. But I, I hear about this guy, and I'm thinking, you are kidding me. He gets to talk to us today a little bit about sowing and reaping. He does. He gets it. He doesn't get it because he is just really smart. He gets it because he, he has this twisted view of a truth that God already has had. It was true in the Bible before it was ever true for this guy. Sowing and reaping is true for everybody because God says it's true in the beginning. It is a biblical truth first. It's just that the whole world taps into it here and in there. It's funny because in this interview, he describes this concept that he teaches his clients and he teaches his children called taking the cookie. Taking the cookie. The idea behind this concept is, is that we love as a culture immediate gratification. It's difficult for us to say no to the cookies of life, isn't it? We want what we want and we want it now. We don't like anything delayed, especially gratification. That's the culture we live in. I agree. I love hearing about this guy's story because when you really think about it, all of this broad spectrum of achievements I just listed, it all started with just 20 push-ups, running his first mile. There was a day, I don't know when it was, when he dropped and did 20 burpees and he came up and he said, woof, so that's what a burpee is. That was hard. Is that hard for anyone else? My goodness. But he sowed. He sowed. And then the next day he sowed again. And he didn't expect immediate gratification. He just kept sowing. And then waiting. Sowing some more. Then he did his first race. And then he sowed a little bit. And then he waited and then sowed a little bit more. And then he reaps this incredible thing. So I think he gets a little bit of that. And I love this whole idea of taking the cookie because it's very biblical. Our culture is engineered to take the cookie. That's what we're built to do. It's in all of us. I mean, it's in me. I'm part of this generation. You can ask my wife. We sit there, just like you do, watch Netflix. If I have to wait more than 15 seconds for that little status bar to turn red, you know what I'm saying? It moves a little bit, and then it stops. I start counting in my mind. One Mississippi. Two Mississippi. And I start fritzing out. If it doesn't just load the, load the episode already, I'm just ready to release the Kraken. I'm so upset. And then Paula's like, what's the big deal? Just wait. I'm like, I can't wait. We need new internet. We're getting new internet. You know, I just start freaking out. 
But that's just a glimpse of the culture. Amazon is building a fleet of drones. Some of you have read about this. FedEx is actually building more now, more than Amazon. Building a fleet of drones that will carry your product to your doorstep so you can have it immediately and you don't have to wait for overnight shipping anymore. Right? Because that's horrible overnight. That's nuts. So, friends, you could be at lunch with your friend, right? Eating and going, you know what? Let's go see Captain America tonight. Let's go do it. In fact, I want some new Toms. Get on your phone, order a pair of Toms. On your way home, you see the little drone flying above your car. It drops off this cute little box of Toms at your doorstep. You put them on, go to the movies with your friend. But at the stoplight before you get there, you're buying tickets to the movies. Why? Because you don't want to wait in line. Why? Because who does that? Immediate gratification. Instant gratification. Taking the cookie. It's sowing in the wrong direction. Right? Sowing in the wrong direction. I mean, no lie, though. Don't you want to order something just to see a drone come to your house? I have to say that. I'm going to order a coffee mug or a sticker or something, man, because i got to see that at least once. What happens is, is there is a sin corruption in us since the garden where we want to gratify our flesh at all times. And so we'll sow to it. We'll sow to it because we don't want to wait for anything. We want immediate comfort. We want immediate provision. We want immediate independence. We want immediate everything, and we will sow to it. But then we live in a culture, and we swim in a culture that kind of nurtures that and builds that. And then we carry it all to Jesus, and we're like, come on, what's going on? I'm sowing. What's the big wait? Let's go. And we get bummed, and we start fritzing out whenever we don't get what we want when we want can I just say the obvious? There are no drones going to carry patience to your house. No drone is going to carry sexual purity to your house. It's not going to happen. No drone is going to carry community to your house. Mission to your house. Bible comprehension is not coming. There's no magic bullet for that. You've got to sow, friends. You've got to sow well. You've got to sow often. You've got to sow to the glory of God. You have to sow to the Spirit. Sow to the Spirit and then wait. And then you sow again and then you wait. And then you sow and then you wait. And then one day, according to God's brilliance and His architecture, which we can't understand, you will reap just the way He wants you to reap. That's how this works. There, t- just break it down for a minute. Look at understanding God's Word. That's something that we all talk about. Every January 1st, This year, I want to understand the Bible more. I want to hunger after the Word more, right? But listen, there's no magic bullet for that, is there? I mean, there's no sermon that I could preach where you walk out of here and go, yeah, I can't wait to go home and just jump in Leviticus and just eat that up. I'm going to read. You know, I can't wait. I love the Bible so much. Don't even talk to me. I'm busy reading right now, as a matter of fact. That doesn't, that sermon's never been preached. It's not going to happen. You've got to sow. Read a little today. Read tomorrow. Read a lot. Read fast. Read slow. Read a little. Read with community. Read on your own. Read out loud. Read to memorize. Read to see the gospel. Read to find Christ. Read. And then read some more. And then continue reading. And then keep reading. And what God reaps over time is a desire and a hunger for His Word. And an ability to 
cut it correctly and see where Christ and the gospel are and all the various parts. That does, does not come by drone. There's no way to take the cookie here. Look at, look at a robust prayer life. That's probably the only thing we say even more come January 1st. I just want to pray with intimacy and I want to pray. There's no, again, there's no sermon I could preach where you walk out of here and you're like, boom, I get it. I'm praying two hours every morning for the rest of my life. Thanks, Luke. It was a great sermon. That's never going to happen. That sermon's never been preached. You've got to sow. You've got to sow. Pray a little today. Pray tonight. Pray tomorrow. Pray constantly. Pray when you're tired. Pray when you're mad. Pray for people that you think don't even deserve your prayer. Pray when you don't even know what God is doing. Pray when you have no words to pray. But all you can do is just groan, cry, and weep. Pray. And then pray some more. And then keep sowing, keep investing, keep making deposits, keep praying. Because there is no magic bullet for this. If you want to reap a robust prayer life, friends, you've got to sow. You've got to sow. There's no magic bullet for community. No cookie to take for sexual purity, for, for eating disorders, for addictions, for depression. There's no magic bullet. You have to sow. You have to sow. And the thing is, is everybody sows. It's just a matter of which direction you're sowing, right? I think we convince ourselves sometimes that, well, I'm just not sowing in a good direction right now, but I need to start sowing to the Spirit. What you're actually saying is, is I've been sowing to the flesh, and that's what I've been doing. There's no alternative. Everyone sows. And the thing is, is you're living out the reality now of what you've sown in the past. That's exciting, isn't it? But think about it. Everyone is living out in real time the reality of past investments. Past sowing. Flip it, and you'll understand that tomorrow you'll be living out today's investments in what you sow today. I coached runners for several years, and stretching was always the controversy. It's this dorky thing that runners argue about, right? Whether to stretch before you run, stretch after you run. Do you do dynamic stretching, static stretching, PNF stretching? All these weird little... I mean, runners are bored with the discussion now, right? But one thing that everyone in the running world understands is whenever you stretch in a workout or before whatever you do, whenever you stretch, it might help you a little bit at that time, but it's really, really accumulative and it's a sewing and investing for tomorrow's workouts. The more limber I make myself today than a month, two, three months from now, I will be a better athlete. I would always tell my athletes that I coached, the reason you're injured, knucklehead, is because you've not been stretching for two or three months. You're living out, your present injuries are because you screwed up in the past. You're living it out. That's biblical. Your injuries today, friends, they're from bad stretching yesterday. You're living it out. It's bad sewing. We say all the time, I do it too. I am you. We say all the time, I don't know how I got so, fill in the blank, whatever it is. I don't know how I got so angry with my wife. I don't know how I got so cold towards my husband. I don't know how I just got so depressed all the time. I don't know how I got so just empty inside. How did I get so tired? I don't know how I got... Friend, it's because you sowed seeds to get there. Just be honest with yourself. You did it. You did it to yourself. You invested. You made those deposits. You sowed those seeds. It's not rocket science. We could just look at your calendar. There are real answers to this. You didn't just evolve there you sowed towards it it's a real principle and god will not be mocked god will not be mocked 
Verse 9. Because this seems so basic. So why do we struggle with it? He tells us in verse 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due seasons we will reap if we do not give up. And that's our biggest temptation, is it not? To give up. It's to give up. We grow tired of not seeing what we want, when we want, and so we start sowing towards the flesh because it at least gives the appearance of supplying our demand. And when we do that, we are mocking God. Right? It's our deepest temptation. It's, it's to take the cookie. And there's a couple big thoughts that rattle around in us whenever we struggle with sowing and reaping. One of them is whenever we sow to the flesh. And this is the lie we tell ourselves. This doesn't matter. It's not, I'm not getting caught. It's just small sin, and it's not even really stacking up. It's kind of insignificant. I've not really reaped anything. Almost like you're an exception, right? Isn't that how we think about it? I mean, it's not that big of a deal. It, it probably, it, I mean, it shouldn't be because nothing's happening. And that's because the results aren't always immediate. And this is especially true in secretive sins. If you're living in some secret sin, that means society can't see it to help you, and it means community can't see it to come in and help you. Men and women all over, trapped in some sort of pornographic sin, trapped in some sort of an eating disorder, some sort of a depression, or an unforgiveness that is secret, that's hoarded, that is hidden in their hearts. And no one can see it. And it just stacks there. And it accumulates. And it immediately it doesn't have an effect. So what you tell yourself is, is, see, it's not doing anything, so you keep sowing those seeds. You just keep sowing them. Right? Now, I think if you're in this group, and I think that'd be most of us, I think we're kind of divided into two different ways of looking at it. One way is you know the boot's about to drop. One way is you know that you've been doing this and you know that the gig's going to be up because you, you're pretty convinced that God cannot be mocked and there will be a day where it will all reap and it will blow up in your face but you feel like it's all out of control and you feel like you're so behind the, the curve that you can't fix it so you just keep sowing knowing that one day it's all just going to blow up. And then there's another camp that you are actually deceived. You actually think you're the exception. The deceiver has deceived you. And friends, you're mocking God. You're mocking God. That's what Paul is talking about right here. Some of you are sitting on top of this right now. But then whenever we sow towards the Spirit, there's another lie we tell ourselves. And that's, it's not working. This isn't working. Luke, I've been praying for two weeks. I've been praying for two weeks every day, and my wife is still mean to me. I've read the Bible for three months, and my life's not changed, Luke. It just doesn't work. And I'll be honest with you, it might not be profound in the beginning. It might, but, but brick by brick we build. Brick by brick by brick by brick. Because, friends, you don't even remember what you ate for lunch three and a half weeks ago. But you reaped out of it. It led you to the next meal, which leads you to sitting here today. We understand this concept of sowing when we don't see immediate, immediate returns. But when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to Jesus and the gospel, we just go nuts. Your greatest temptation is going to be to grow weary. And Paul is saying you have to hang on. Because it is those small, insignificant seeds that you're sowing that reap big returns. In church planting, I've told people who have moved from city to city, and I've told up-and-coming pastors and leaders, some, a lot of you in this room have heard me say it to you directly, if you want a big testimony, it's going to have a big price tag. 
Everyone wants a great testimony. No one wants to sow for it. They want it for free. Friend, they don't come for free. There is no magic bullet. There are no drones. There's no cookie to take. If you want a deep testimony, one that just rattles cages, it's got a big price tag to it. Truth. That's truth. It's so easy for us to say it's not working. And I get it. Every year in our church's history, which isn't very long, it's like our third year, right? I've determined to fit the karate kid in a sermon at least once a year as an illustration, so here you have it, 2014. I'm up to quota, right? And I'm not talking about the rip-off remake. That was a horrible movie. But I'm talking about the original one, whenever I was in junior high, right? Before some of you were born. This great movie with Ralph Macchio and Mr. Miyagi. It's a fantastic movie. Friends, if you've seen that movie, he wasn't just sanding floors, was he? He's blocking kicks. He wasn't just painting fences. He wasn't just waxing a stupid car. He wasn't just balancing in a canoe, was he? He was, he was practicing a kick. He was sowing insignificant seeds, wasn't he? The whole movie. This is stupid. You've got me waxing cars. I need to learn how to block punches. What are we doing? I thought you were going to teach me. Insignificant seeds. Over and over again, the whole movie... Until there he is in the tournament with the good-looking blonde guy with the cool gi, you know. And he crank kicks him. And what does he do? He gets the girl, gets the trophy, gets the car, gets the father figure. And he gets the adoration of every junior high boy on the edge of his seat, right? Amen. It's the greatest movie ever. And if you haven't seen it, shame on you. But doesn't it feel like we're all just standing floor sometimes? Ask yourself. Be honest. Doesn't it just feel like you're just painting fences? Insignificantly sewing where you're not seeing anything happen? Wondering if God is ever going to do anything? I do. I'm there. I get in my car a lot of times and I'm thinking, God, am I nuts or something? Because this just isn't paying off. Where's the payoff in this? I'm sewing and I know you see it feels like that to me. I think what I really hunger for is my circumstances to change. But I'll be honest, I don't think God is as interested in my circumstances changing as much as he is interested in me changing. And I think the distance, I think I like the original analogy of sowing, waiting, and reaping. Because there's such a long time between putting a seed in the ground and waiting. Isn't there? Or or in the reaping. There's just a wait. There's a long protracted time of waiting. And man, God really messes with us in that time, doesn't he? It just takes forever. He's changing us. So what happens to those of you who are sowing to the flesh? What's happening? Can I just speak to you and encourage you, if you're a Christian today, if you love Jesus and you've been sowing to the flesh, let me remind you that God sowed His best into humanity. He sowed His best into humanity. A Christ who came and sowed a perfect life Himself. He didn't misspend a single second. He never sowed to the flesh. And what did he reap for that? A crucifixion. You see, we sowed sin and rebellion, and he sowed a perfect life. And we reap that perfect life as he reaped the punishment that was due us on that cross. God knows all about sowing and reaping. The gospel is all about sowing and reaping. So what does that mean for us who are sowing towards the flesh? It means that there's no condemnation, friend. There should be conviction. There should not be condemnation. The difference is this. 
Conviction says your sin is ugly. Condemnation says you are ugly. And the thing about living true life in the gospel is that God, when you're sowing in your flesh, loves you no less than the day that he raised you from the depths of running away from him as fast as you could. That there's no performance anymore, no work. There's nothing you can do to make him love you anymore. So there's no condemnation for you. If you're sowing to the flesh, there's no condemnation for you. Sounds like I'm letting you off the hook, doesn't it? Paul is not saying, hey, look here, you can live your best life now. All you have to do is sow really good seeds and you get like really good stuff at the end. But that's not what Paul is saying, is it? He's saying, because God sowed his best and reaped for you eternal life, you're free to enjoy God and you're free to sow well. You're you're free to share good things with those who are sharing with you. You are free to live a life of sacrifice. You are free to walk in the identity that God has given you in Christ. You're free for that. I love that. I love how the gospel changes all of this for us. I mean, let me just be frank, if I can. The reason most of you fail, the reason I fail, the reason most of us fail whenever we start new endeavors is because we try to pick up too much at once, isn't it? I mean, we, we, start, we start that, I don't know, Bible diet plan where we're going to read like the Bible an hour every day. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're going to make it halfway through Deuteronomy and you're going to quit. I'm going to pray two hours every day. No, you're not. No, you're just trying to take on two. Let's remember, seeds are small, right? Seeds are small. Pray, hey, pray 10 minutes a day. What is that? 3,652 minutes a year? It's over 50 hours, Right? Right? Right. It's over 50 hours. Ain't none of you pray 50 hours in a year. Maybe a few of you, right? Think about that. Don't read 30 pages a day if you can't do that. Read four. Look for one thing, and then you're out. Three or four pages. You do the math. That'd be several books. I've done the math once. It's between 15 and 25 books, depending on the book. None of you read that. Only a few of you have read that many books in a year. Small, small seeds. Small seeds. I got to move on. Man. Verse 10, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. He's talking about sowing again, right? Let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So he's shooting wide, he's shooting narrow, using shotgun, using rifle. He's talking about sowing and sharing and doing good to all, the city, the culture, and then to the household of faith, the church, right? So we'll just take that approach. How are you sowing seeds and handling the city today? As a missionary to Knoxville, which you are, by the way, as you're sowing seeds, are you waiting for an immediate reaction? Maybe you want them to reciprocate that love back to you. You keep waiting. It's not going to happen so fast, friend. Missions is sloppy. Missions is sloppy, but it takes heavy investment without immediate results, by the way. I've never led anyone to the cross and to the tomb that there was not sloppy, hard, continual investment into that person. It's never, I've heard of people doing that. I know, I've read books. I've been to the same conferences a lot of you have. We hear about that dude. He walks up, rolls up on a guy, ambushes him with the gospel. He gets radically saved. That's just never happened to me, if I could be honest. It's always 22 lunches. 15 gospel applications where nine of them, I'm pretty sure they weren't even listening, right? 13 arguments. 27 celebratory moments. 952 awkward moments where we're not even quite sure what was happening, but something must have been happening. It's a game of inches. You're sowing. And then you sow some more. And then you sow some more. And then what happens? 
you reap. But you're not really the one reaping, they are. Because they become a Christian, God is glorified. Friends, that takes investment. It takes investment. If you look for immediate gratification, if you look to take the cookie when it comes to mission, it'll never happen. It'll never happen. It's a game of inches. What about the confines of covenant community? It's actually harder for us to do this with each other than it is with the lost world, right? I mean, anyone know the person that's always bleeding and needy and requiring? That's fun, right? Some of you are that person. (laughs) Always hard. It's hard to invest. It's hard to do good. But this is our motivation for it. And I'm finishing. This is our motivation. God did good to you when you were horrible to him. God did good to you when you were horrible to him. You sowed sin and you reaped eternal life. Think about that. Think about with the gospel. Friends, with the gospel, you reaped where you didn't sow. You didn't earn that. You reaped where you didn't sow. Some of you are asking yourself, when is this going to happen? I've been sowing, 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 and nothing's happening. Friend, I'll be honest, you might not ever see anything happen. You might just sow your whole life and nothing may, nothing may happen. Read Hebrews 11. They, they worked and they believed in a city that was to come and they saw it from afar and they recognized it, but they never received the promise. It was promised them. They were building for something in the future. It's a hard reality, but I have to remind myself, as a pastor, there's going to be a lot of seed that I sow. I'm not going to reap on it. Someone else will reap on it. But the beauty of that is, and what makes me feel comfortable, is I've reaped the gospel that I didn't earn. I'm reaping where I didn't sow. So I'm totally free and comfortable sowing where I will never reap. That's the motivation behind this. The motivation is not to do good to others so that God likes you more, approves of you more, gives you more favor, and puts a gold star above your column. Right? That's just performance. That's legalism. The motivation is that God was good to you, so you are free to be good to others. You are free. And listen, hear me, you're free to fail too. And he loves you no different. He loves you no different. If you do good, sowing well towards people, God loves you. If you fail at sowing well towards God's people, he loves you. But there's something liberating in knowing that he loves us so much that we cannot shake his love. It brings a freedom about. That's the motivation. That's the motivation. The gospel just frees me to do good. I don't need you to like me. I don't need that reciprocity. I don't need you to like me. I'm so comfortable right now in how God sees me through Jesus that I can give to you freely whether you give back or not. There's a freedom in it. All right, go ahead and stand with me. Um, I need to land this or I go all day. Um, there are some questions I want you to ask yourself as we worship. Now they're going to come up, the musicians are going to come, and they're going to lead us in song, and you'll see lyrics up on the screen, um, and we'll have elements in the back, and that's just um, bread and juice, right? I think we have gluten-free bread back there too. So you go back there, and it's just where we take the elements together. It's a pictorial gospel. It's something we do as a church. So if you're not a Christian, hey, just don't sweat it. Just hang out and listen to the music. But if you are a Christian and you love Jesus, we just invite you to take that communion, and we'd even love it if you took it in community. If you found um, someone with you, maybe you came with family or a roommate, we would love for you to take it together. It's a great thing to experience together because it is a picture of all of us being united in one body. Um, But as we do this, as we worship... And any time during the songs, you feel free to go back and then come forward. Um, 
I just want to challenge you to ask yourself some questions. Right? What are you sowing secretly to? Secretly. And are you becoming impatient because you're not seeing results? Or are you mocking God because you're sowing towards the flesh? You just haven't been busted yet. Maybe you don't think you will be busted. Maybe you don't care if you'll be busted anymore. Secretly, what are, what are you sowing to? That thing, friend, is more beautiful to you than Jesus. That's the real sin. Right? Sharing with others. Are you doing good to those around you? Especially to the household of faith. And if the answer is yes, then why are you doing it? Because the motive matters. Are you doing it because you really expect that God is going to like you more? Friend, you've already reaped, Christian, where you have not sown. You can't add to the treasure that is approval through Jesus Christ. You can't. Right? Some of you are mad at God today. Some of you are honestly, if you're being honest with yourself, you're mad with God because he's been delaying. So much time has gone by between the sowing of the seeds and the reaping of the seeds that you fear he has left you and you're ticked. You want the drone to come, it has not come, and you've been holding out, and he's not coming, and you're mad, and every morning you wake up, you just get more mad. Do you see him working in you? Do you see what he's exposing in you? Just embrace God's work in your life. He loves you. He loves you more than you realize, and he loves you more than you love yourself. 